This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Head to audible.com slash fool for a 30-day free trial. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus Financials Edition. Today is May 9th, 2016. My name is Gabby LaPera. I'm in the studio, and joining me on the phone is financials analyst John Maxfield. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Gabby. Happy to be here, as always. Fantastic. Um, I am also very excited to be here. You guys will have to excuse any auditory vocalized pauses that I might take because I haven't had any caffeine yet, as I was explaining to John. And I'm not I'm not at my best and brightest without caffeine. So here we go. Rolling right into our story of the day. What is we are we're gonna be talking about Bank of America and Merrill Lynch. Um, as many of you may have noticed if you're a Bank of America customer, Merrill Lynch and Bank of America are in some way joined. And I think Maxfield can give us a little bit more background on exactly how they came to be together, right? That's right. Yeah. So Bank of America purchased Merrill Lynch in, in September in 2008. And here, just to kind of set up, set the scene a little bit more, you know, one of the things uh, we've seen in the eight years since the financial crisis is that some banks have gone and basically recovered and even actually thrived as a result of the financial crisis. Wells Fargo is a perfect example of that, right? I mean, it's more than doubled in size. It's making more money than it's ever made before. And even in this tough interest rate environment, I mean, Wells Fargo is such an incredibly vibrant and viable business model that you, you, you wouldn't even guess that it had just survived the financial crisis. J.P. Morgan Chase, it's doing pretty well, too. But Bank of America is really, really struggling. And mind you that this is the nation's second largest bank, so it's a really important bank. For the United States, when one of the, and the, so the question is, is why is it struggling? And one of the reasons it, it seems to be struggling is because of the the acquisition of Merrill Lynch um, that it did in September of 2008, really in the trough of the financial crisis over a very fast weekend. It was the same exact weekend that Lehman Brothers failed. That the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve approach Bank of America to see if they'd be willing to basically just buy Merrill Lynch over the course of a weekend. And that's they did. They paid something like $50 billion for Merrill Lynch. But the thing that's important to keep in mind in all of this is that that happened really before the post-crisis regulatory regime kind of changed the name of the game um, for banks. Yeah. And I think what listeners have to understand, too, is that people were worried about a domino effect, just like they were worried about Vietnam and communists with a domino effect. They were worried about banks. So Lehman Brothers failed. And then they were convinced that the the banks, like from smallest to largest, would fail one right after the other, which is why the federal government stepped in and asked Bank of America, "Hey, do you want to do you want to buy Merrill Lynch before it fails?" That's right. I mean, if, so if you go if we go back in time to two thousand and eight, so in March of that year is when the Treasury Department basically approached. I'm not basically. I mean, they directly approached J.P. Morgan Chase to say, "Look, can you guys step in and save Bear, Bear Stearns?" Well, Bear Stearns was the fifth largest investment bank. Lehman Brothers was the fourth largest. And then Merrill Lynch was the third largest. Then you had Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. And, and, and to Gabby's point, they, it just looked like that's the way the dominoes were tumbling. You had Bear fall in basically in March. You had Lehman fall in September. And the thought was that if you didn't draw the line somewhere, all five of them would go. And then that would just be a, a, a global, that would cause a global catastrophe. What do you think? Do you think Merrill Lynch actually would have failed if Bank of America hadn't bought them up? That's a great question. You know, <laughs> Gabby, I got to be honest, that's an amazing question. So let me let me answer it this way. So there are some banks out there, J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo in particular, who basically said, "Look, we did not need the federal government to step in to save us." And to a certain extent, that is right. 
because you know Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan Chase had plenty of liquidity, had plenty of capital. They were fine as institutions. It was really just a handful of you know other commercial banks that were struggling, and then all the investment banks. But had the government not stepped in and basically backstopped the entire credit market in the United States, every single bank was at was at threat of failure. Because if J.P. Morgan Chase may have been fine. But all of its counterparties that owe J.P. Morgan Chase money, and the, you know, when one counterparty owes another counterparty money, that's an asset to the to the company that the money is owed. So basically, J.P. Morgan Chase's assets could have been decimated not because of J.P. Morgan Chase, but because of all its counterparties failed. So the fact of the matter is, yes, I, I think there's an argument that if the government didn't step in, not only would have Merrill Lynch uh, failed, but even the biggest and, and, and soundest organi financial organizations in the country would, would, would have been a threat of failure. Yeah, this is actually a really interesting idea. Um, there, there's a lawsuit going on right now saying that the federal, I don't know if you know too much about Fannie Mae, but the federal government obviously interceded with Fannie Mae during the financial crisis and Freddie Mac for that matter. But Fannie Mae has been turning a profit for quite a while and the federal government has been collecting up the dividends, and it hasn't released the company like they said they would. And some people are saying that in Fannie Mae, I don't know if it's true or not, that they didn't really need government intercession to begin with. So this whole thing is illegal, and they're they're all they're all there's a big old lawsuit brewing. So it's just a really interesting idea to think what would have happened to Fannie Mae to all these banks if the federal government hadn't hadn't come in. It's a it's a it's a thought experiment because yeah, they I, did. I, I, <laughs> I, I will tell you this. I'll tell you this: that had the government not come in, basically the government's intervention during the financial crisis is what stopped the financial crisis from being a financial crisis, from transforming into a Great Depression. Because it was the failure of the government to really step in more robustly during the Great Depression that allowed it to turn into that. So I'm just going to take a brief break and thank Audible again for sponsoring today's episode. Audible.com is a great platform for audiobooks, which, if you're in the D.C. area, are fantastic to listen to while you forlornly watch for a train to come. Let an audiobook transport you from the dreary reality of commuting. Just go to audible.com slash fool for a free 30-day free trial. Okay, so now Bank of America, going back to our story, has purchased Merrill Lynch. And the th things have changed for them. What they hadn't realized, I guess no one had really thought about, the regulatory environment was going to have to change as a result of the financial crisis. So the financial uh, regulatory climate was completely different on from that weekend onward, which really sucked for Bank of America. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on air, but we're going to keep it in. <laughs> um, so now Bank of America is running into a few different things, right? So. Uh, the regulatory requirements have changed. Um, first and foremost, liquidity coverage ratio. Second, capital requirements. Third, believe it or not, their scale is working against them. And fourth, the Volcker rule. So let's cover that in order. Do you want to start with the liquidity coverage ratio? Yeah, and 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 here's the issue. So Bank of America, you a bank wants to earn one percent on its assets. That's really what you need to earn in order for a bank to be able to create create value. Well, Bank of America is earning dramatically less than that. And so one of the reasons that it's earning so much less is because its balance sheet has to be much more liquid than a, a regional bank or, or a much even a large bank like Wells Fargo, but a simpler bank. Because Wells Bank of America has both investment banking operations and retail banking operations. So if you think about what a bank is, really a bank is nothing more than a leveraged fund, right? You have some capital. You borrow a whole bunch of money for really cheap from depositors, and then you invest that money into higher yielding assets. 
Well, so the key is that if you can invest a larger chunk of that money into higher yielding, in, into really high yielding assets, and in the banking world, those are loans, then you're going to make a lot more money than a bank that's going to have to invest its money in, say, government securities, which only yield, you know, whatever it is, 2%, 2.5%. So if you look at Bank of America, one of the things that you'll notice is that only 41% of its earning assets consist of loans. Whereas if you go over and you look at Wells Fargo, 51% of its earning assets consist of loans. And so well, and how much- for our listeners, just so you know, 10 percentage points might not seem like a lot. For example, if you got a 46 on a test and you raise it up to a 56, you're still failing. 10 percentage points can make all the difference in the world in financial terms. Yeah, 10% is a huge. And let me, let me give you some numbers to really back this up. So, Bank of America has $1.8 trillion worth of earning assets, okay? So, the difference between uh, Bank of America and Wells Fargo in terms of the percentage of loans, or the percentage of their assets that are allocated to loans, equates to $11 billion in annual interest income for Bank of America. So, that's just like basically free money that for all intents and purposes after falls to the bottom line after taxes are taken out of the, out of the equation. So, the fact that it has to stay so much more liquid than Wells Fargo does is really impacting this bottom line. And the reason it has to stay so much more liquid is because of this thing called the liquidity coverage ratio. And the liquidity coverage ratio basically just tells banks how much cash or high quality assets they have to hold high on quality their balance sheet. Liquid assets. And for our listeners who are maybe new to investing or finance, liquid means that they're easily converted into cash. And that- the reason that banks have to have such a high before before the financial crisis, banks had a much lower threshold for their liquidity coverage ratio because they just that's, did. No one had no one had to. That's right. And and what we learned in the financial crisis, and and we've seen this through multiple through financial crises, basically every financial crisis in the past, is that one of the main reasons that banks fail isn't necessarily because of, for a lack of capital but it's for the lack of liquidity. So you have depositors that are running on a bank that want their cash very quickly. Well, a bank cannot, as a general rule, transition its assets from you know, say loans, government securities, over into cash fast enough to satisfy those runs. And so what the, Federal, what the regulator saw was that, look, we need to require the banks just at all times to hold more liquidity on their balance sheet. And the banks that have to hold the most are universal banks, the ones with trading operations, other types of Wall Street operations, and retail operations because the projected, uh, because their liquidity coverage ratio is much higher because the cash outflow under a projected scenario where, you know, you have like a kind of a financial crisis, which is, they use the same kind of test that they use in the, in, in, during the capital, the, the CCAR process every year, which tests capital standards, is that they look at how much liquidity would flow out of a bank under a severely adverse economic scenario. And then that's how much a bank has to hold on its balance sheet um, at any one time. Right. And so, if you think about it, a retail bank, which are banks that specialize in basically taking deposits and putting them back out again as loans, the the likelihood of them losing all of their capital because of a bank run is a lot less than people pulling out of the stock market, which is what could happen to a universal bank. Right, or even more, even more importantly, let's say you have you're a universal bank like Bank of America, and you have a prime brokerage, so you serve hedge funds, and hedge funds keep a lot of money 
on deposit with you in order to you know buy and sell securities as opportunities present themselves well hedge funds they are at the cutting edge in terms of knowing what's going on at wall street as soon as they hear that there's a problem at a bank they're going to pull out all of their money out so that's where that run really starts whereas retail deposits with people like you and me we don't well I and mean, we're you know a little unique because we follow banks so closely but the average person doesn't follow banks that closely so they're not going to know when a bank gets into trouble immediately so they're not going to run on the bank immediately and, and pull that money out so that's that difference between your wall street operations and your retail banking operations from the liquidity perspective right and so now we run into our second hurdle which is again a product of the new regulations that came with the financial crisis which is capital requirements yeah, and so let me give you some numbers, just put this in perspective. So going into the financial crisis in 2007, Bank of America was leveraged $9.8 uh, worth of assets for every $1 worth of equity, oh. uh, and, and that's earning assets, okay? So then after the financial crisis, that fell to $7.8 worth of assets for every $1 earning assets for every $1 worth of, worth of equity. So the question is, why did Bank of America's leverage fall by 20%? And in and, and, and trying to figure out the answer to this, one thing you can do is you can go, well, did every bank's leverage fall this much? And the, fact, and the answer to that is no. So if you look at Wells Fargo, it basically is operating with the exact, not the exact same, but just a, a very small reduction in leverage relative to where it was before the crisis. So it went from $9.5 worth of earning assets for every $1 worth of equity down to only $9.2 worth of earning assets every $1 equity. So the question is, well, why is Wells Fargo able to still operate with that, much, with that much leverage, but Bank of America isn't? And the answer to that is that the regulators came in and said, look, you large, global, systematically important banks like, Wells like Bank of America, where you have both retail operations and investment banking operations, you guys have to hold a lot more capital than more uh, than more traditional organizations, and so that is where that combination with Merrill Lynch and Bank of America is actually working against Bank of America. Even though when they got into the deal, there was a belief that there would be all these great synergies that would increase profitability. Right, and again, before the financial crisis, there weren't these kind of <clears throat> stringent requirements on systemically important financial institutions. I don't even know did they have that designation before the financial crisis. No, that's all. That's all a new thing as a result of the Dodd Frank uh, Act. That's what I thought. Um, I was also much younger when the financial crisis occurred, so I don't think I was following banks nearly as closely as I am now. Um, so the third thing is, you would think that Bank of America would be able to to, like you said, take advantage of the synergies. I sound like a consultant now. Of the synergies between the merger of Merrill Lynch and Bank of America, and kind of like leverage that to, to really profit from it. You're basically sitting here saying economies of scale, right? Like why aren't they making more money? Like Costco makes more money because they're bigger and they can, you know, pass on savings. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, and, and one of the main issues is that going into the crisis, one of the ways that Merrill Lynch made a lot of money was through its trading operations. Well, another part of the post-crisis regulatory regime is that the regulators have really, really constrained what banks can do when it comes to trading. So in 2010, for example, Bank of America earned something like $10 billion worth of revenue from trading, and that was really from the Merrill Lynch operations that it had acquired in 2008. Well, last year it was down to something like $6.5 billion. So it decreased something like 36%. So you have you know, this change in the regulatory regime that basically eviscerates Bank of America's, to a certain extent, large swaths of Bank of America's trading operations. So 
And it bought Merrill Lynch thinking that like, look, oh, the trading operations are so profitable. And now those trading operations have been basically taken away. And the only way that the only reason that banks can trade nowadays for the most part is in order to hedge their own risk, to hedge identifiable risks, or two, in order to make a market for clients. That means that they can no longer trade, a bank can no longer trade on its own behalf, which is how they really made money. Yeah, so this is part of the Volcker Rule, which is a ban on proprietary trading, which is what Maxfield just described. Um, it also prohibits ban- banks from owning or investing in hedge funds or private equity, and it came with a slew of liability limitations. So it really curtailed the bank's ability to do what banks had been doing before, which is good in terms of financial stability, but bad in terms of them being able to make money. Because as always, the riskier the proposition, the more likely you are to make money. Or not the more likely you are to make money, the bigger money you could make. Right. And and here's one other piece to to this whole puzzle. So, because Wall Street operations, trading, mergers and acquisitions, advisory work, stuff like that, it, it it has a tendency to be much more volatile than just your traditional commercial banking operations, taking deposits and making loans. And because of the enhanced volatility in these type of operations, in, traders give banks with both type of operations much lower multiples on their stock. And when a bank has a lower multiple on its stock, if it wants to eventually use that stock to make an acquisition, its money doesn't go as far. So not only is this hurting your profitability at a bank, but it's also impacting a bank's valuation, which impacts its cost of equity. Yeah. Another really interesting aspect to this rule that I was reading about um, was that for certain big banks, because of the Volcker rule, some of their top traders just left because they felt like they couldn't do their jobs anymore. So they went off and started their own hedge funds, which it hadn't even occurred to me that it might cause a brain drain from banks. Yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a big deal for banks over the really since the financial crisis with their trading operations in particular. Yeah, to your point, yeah, leaving banks because they're so heavily constrained, going into hedge funds which don't have the same type of regulatory oversight. Yeah, so bring you back. Uh, what do you think Bank of America will sell Merrill Lynch? So here's the question about Bank of America Merrill Lynch. It's it looks to me, and I would say that a lot of uh, bank analysts would agree, that Bank of America, as it is presently constructed, i.e. as a universal bank, with this huge slate of operations, both investment banking operations and retail banking operations, it doesn't look like that combination is going to produce the type of profits that investors are going to expect over the long run. So then the, so then the question is, well, what does Bank of America do about this? Does it like just basically spin Merrill Lynch back off. And, and, and I don't see that as happening because Merrill Lynch does have really valuable wealth management businesses that Bank of America does benefit from a lot that are really stable and that add to its, add to its business as opposed to subtracting from it. So it, most likely you would think that it's going to keep those wealth management operations. The question is, what's it going to do with those Wall Street operations? Does it you know, just continue to slog along and hope that things turn around eventually? Does it shut those down? Does it spin those off to another bank or to a, to a competitor? That's, that's the big question. But I, I would certainly say that if Bank of America's profitability does not improve, and because of the regulatory constraints you know, around these things and the way that Bank of America is built, it looks like it's going to have a hard time earning the same type of money as Wells Fargo. And at that point, after, I mean, like a certain point, you know, what, two years from now, five years from now, will be, you know, more than a decade past the financial crisis. So if Bank of America isn't able to earn that 1% on its assets, 
I would have a hard time envisioning investors sitting pat and just letting letting things continue on as they are. Yeah, and especially because the bank has talked about increasing efficiencies a lot of late now that they're done with all their legal woes. Well, for the most part, they're done with all their legal woes. I think that they're probably going to start looking internally and seeing what cost-cutting measures they can take. They've already started doing it. This might just be a natural progression of that. Yeah, I mean, they've cut uh, under Project BAC, which they've completed, they've cut over $8 billion in annual annual expenses on a yearly basis. But you can only cut expenses so far. Right now, the problem at Bank of America really is no longer about expenses. The problem now is about revenue. How is it going to generate more revenue? So now it's become a lot more about salvaging the parts of the body that that do have a hope of generating a lot of profit, of getting better, rather than trying to nurse along the sick parts of Bank of America slash Merrill right. Lynch. Right, and and let those uh, contaminate the healthy part, parts of, uh, of the operation. Exactly, it's basically gangrene. <laughs> <laughs> Except not. Don't don't sue us, Bank of America. Um, so, what what do you think? What do you think should be our final investing takeaway for this episode? I think there. To be honest, with you, I think there's actually two. So, first of all, I'm I'm a shareholder in Bank of America. It's actually me and my wife's biggest position. So, I'm I'm not. I'm actually pretty bullish on Bank of America. But the question is, how is the value in that investment going to be unlocked? And splitting up Merrill Lynch, if they do spin off a piece of it, and if then the two different pieces can get higher valuations at each of their respective stocks, there could be a lot of value created in that. So I, I think that is a very potential likelihood. Now, the other potential is, is on the downside, is if they can't get things to turn around, to a certain extent, investors are going to bid the, pri- the stock price down even further, which is crazy to think about when it's already trading for something like 35% discount to its book value. Right. So basically, keep your ears perked for any kind of information on Bank of America and Merrill Lynch. So, thank you guys very much for joining us. Thank you, Austin, for mixing sound behind the behind the glass back there. As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. Let us know if you have any questions because we're doing a mailbag, a mailbag episode eventually. Maybe you're curious about the debacle that's going on at London Club right now or why the heck chip cards take so long to process. Whatever your question is, please email us. Thank you for joining us and I hope everyone has a great week. <laughs> <laughs>